Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast. Along with Connor Glassy and Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. Thanks everyone for joining us. We're going to talk 2013 MLB Draft. I don't know if we're closing the books on the 2013 draft. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have a signings podcast next month, Jim. But uh, we are kind of a week away now, a week in our rearview mirror from the first round finally. And judging by the signings uh, blog, Jim, it doesn't sound like you've gotten much sleep yet. No, it's um, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we don't go through the, the the silly process we had before, where MLB would delay the announcement of deals that were above their well below market recommendations. But uh, the, the the toughest thing about covering the draft now is that there literally is no rest. I mean, the draft ends on Saturday, and and then Monday, first round picks are uh, are, are signing. So it's uh, I think we've got 12 first round picks who have done deals, um, and I think by the end of the week we might have. I'm just Looking at the list here, one, two, three, four. You know, I think we might have another 10 or 12 signed by the end of the week. I mean, we might have, you know, at least two-thirds of the first round done by, by the end of the first week after the draft. Wow, that's a tremendous step forward. Well, that's why I, I, that's why I want to start off with the draft uh, podcast, talking just kind of big picture on the second year of the CBA, and just kind of, what I guess now, uh, 2007, the Josh Vitter's draft, because he, he was the one who was there in Orlando, uh, Connor, we've had now uh, dra- six drafts on TV. What's your take? And obviously, Jimmy can follow up. But Connor, what's your take as a you know a, a baseball fan, a fan of the draft, and someone who follows it very closely from kind of start to finish? Um, you know, what's your take on how the, this new the, this era of the draft is is uh, is working? Is the first round good TV? Is the whole process? Uh, how do you what do you feel works and what would you want to improve? No, I think it is. I mean, I you know obviously I love it because I'm I'm right so in in tune with the draft and I love the draft. But I think I think even the casual fan is starting to really enjoy it because uh, you know there's you know there's the the showcase circuit the summer showcase circuit is kind of putting the spotlight on these high school players a little bit more so people know who they are a little bit more. Definitely have more uh, video of these guys. You know, yeah, more video YouTube. online and then. Uh, you know, and then more college baseball on TV. It, it kind of leads right into the draft, and um, you know, I think for the casual fan, they're starting to realize just how important the draft is, and, and 
today's you know economic market for baseball, and then they're starting to see players drafted move into the big leagues quickly, and so I think people are starting to pay attention. It's not, I don't think it's ever going to be as, as dynamic of an event as the NBA draft or the NFL draft, but I think it is good TV. Yeah, I think it is too. And uh, and Jim, you made a good point. Like the first round, I definitely understand why there's five minutes. I wish every team didn't take its full five minutes. It feels like they do. Um, well, they have to. You know, they have to. I don't think. I mean, just being behind the scenes is part of the broadcast. I think if you let's say I made my pick and you were the next team, John, you wanted to make your pick. They're not going to let you make your pick because they want to get the commentary in and the interviews. You know, especially now this year they had I think eight first round picks. We're right. in the studio for the draft. Um, so that's kind of it, – it's not that uh, team – you know, obviously you can't trade those first-round picks. It's not that there's any team, you know, working behind the scenes or, or doing a lot of – I mean, there may be some last-second signability calls, but even if you wanted to make your pick quicker than that, I, I don't think Bud Selig would come to the podium and <laughs> announce your selection. There should be an addendum, and you know I love him, but there should be an addendum that if HR is saying something really ridiculous, they should be able to cut in and make the pick. So <laughs> – you know I love HR, but uh, his draft uh, contribution is more from the passion side than from the information side. So we'll just put it that way. I, I do love HR's passion for the game and uh, passion for amateur baseball. Um, but, yeah, so not only can they not make the pick quicker on that night, Jim, the next day they have a minute between picks. And, boy, Connor, I mean, just sitting here listening, that that, that day drags. That second day drags. That it you're it listening does and watching. a little bit. It does just because you're used to kind of the uh, the more rapid-fire pace. Right, but, um, but it sounds like Jim, you need to have they, they, the teams want that minute in between picks on uh, on day two with rounds three through ten. This year, day two was rounds three through, through ten. One of the reasons why I hate when people call it uh, he's a day one draft guy or day two draft guy that changes every year. It seems like yeah, there's nothing consistent about what's day one of the draft and what's day two. But this year, day two was rounds three through ten, and the teams needed that minute in between picks. You were saying. Yeah, we were talking about this before we we started recording, but you know, I, I know I guess at home it drags. You know, I'm, I was part of the MLB.com broadcast, and it it, it doesn't feel like it drags to me because I'm sitting there trying to comment on every player for for six hours. But but the reason you need, I mean, a minute between picks isn't a ton of time for the teams. And now that we have this, this new system under the CBA that came in and into effect last year, where you have your bonus pool for the top ten rounds and if you don't sign a guy, his money disappears out of your pool, and you can't go more than five percent over your pool without losing a first-round pick. Teams, you know, I bet some of those teams feel rushed, especially if if you're, you know, say two or three picks away, and then the guy you think you've got all lined up to pick gets popped right in front of you. You need a couple minutes to be able to react. I think we even had, I don't know, maybe maybe a handful of timeouts. I think you actually can call a timeout if you need more time and. And when that happened, I kind of assumed that, hey, the team was getting ready to pick the guy who went right in front of them. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know if gamesmanship's the right word, guys, but, uh, you know, where you'll call a guy in the fifth round. You know, let, let's say I want to sign Connor in the fifth round, and, and, and my slot, you know, is somewhere in the 200s. I might call Connor and say, Connor, uh, you know, we'd like to take you here, but to be honest, you know, we're only, you know, only going to pay you 150 you got two minutes to decide. Yeah, I'll take it. You know, and then they might call them five minutes before the pick. <laughs> You're taking it? Okay, good. Then we're done. But, uh, you know, but they'll, they'll, I mean, there, there are an awful lot of those phone calls that go on, you know, where they, they, the kid or, or his advisor is told, you know, you know, you got five minutes to make a decision. So if you had the rapid fire, 
I think that would move almost too fast for the teams in rounds three through ten, where you really can't afford to mess up your pick or or mess up your signability. Rounds eleven through forty, you know, you know, it's different. Those guys aren't part of the pool. You can kind of fly through those. Jim uh, and Connor, why don't we just uh, delve right into uh, the what actually happened now, as far as which players were picked? Because I think you're right about the signability kind of dovetails into it. And we actually had a Twitter question. Uh, you know, as usual, we take your questions here whether it's via email at podcast at baseballamerica.com or over Twitter. Um, and one of them t- goes right into, to me, the start of the draft. Because our number one player in our BA 500 went third in Jonathan Gray. And then he just signed yesterday, um, as we're recording this on Thursday morning. And uh, Train, I'm trying to – Train Daga, am I reading that right? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, right. I don't uh, – my eyes are terrible. Terrible. I need to go get new glasses. Uh, he asks, which, if any, of the late-round tough signs is most likely to sign with the Rockies after Gray's underslot deal? First off, Connor, I, I just thought the Rockies had to be really excited to get Jonathan Gray third overall, um, the way things worked out. I, I, I guess I would say that I thought Chris Bryant going second was the first surprise of the draft to me, to me because I just thought the Cubs were so on pitchers. But I thought you know the Rockies had to be ecstatic to get Gray at three. Um, so maybe I don't know if you share that opinion and what, what guys could the Rockies, uh, they took the most BA 500 players. They did. So yeah. who could they uh, maybe sign, uh, with some of the money they uh, saved on, on gray. Yeah. I, I do think they have to be ecstatic about that. I mean, you know, two elite pitchers in this draft and we kind of thought they'd go one, two and, you know, with how hard it is to get free agent pitchers to Coors Field, getting, you know, a potential top of the rotation guy there at three is, is huge and getting them signed this early is is great. Uh, you know, they took a run at, at Alec Hansen in the 25th round. He's a Colorado guy. Um, fell off a little bit. He had some, some arm issues really late in the season, like his last two starts. Yeah, you were on that guy. Yeah, no, I, I really like that guy. And, and here's the thing is uh, head scouts tell me he might throw 100 one day. I mean, he might be the next Jonathan Gray. Hmm. Um, you know, so it'd be, it'd be interesting to see if they can make a run at him. One interesting aspect of it is when he did get hurt, he went and saw the Rockies' doctor. You know, ah. their team doctor was the guy who kind of checked out his elbow. Um, so, so that could be really interesting. I, I, you know, that's great couple, info. Yeah, a couple rounds later, they went for Kyle Serrano. I, I don't see him signing, but uh, you know, maybe they could make a run at Al Canson. Yeah, and then when you when your dad's tweeting uh, after the first or second round was over, like, hey, uh, Kyle's coming to Tennessee now to play for me, <laughs> you know. Kind of makes it hard to imagine that Kyle Serrano will sign. What about Andy McGuire in the 36th round? Wasn't he the guy who was the USA uh, 18U team star and had a real tough hip injury? I mean, yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing with him. I mean, you know, scouts really liked his bat this summer, and obviously he performed at some big events, but uh, just seems like a real scary injury for you know such a young kid. It seems more kind of like a older person injury. So yeah. that would be the concern for me. That's a little bit more of a wait and see injury than to me than it is when you have a pitcher who's a local kid who your team doctor saw. So you've got inside yeah, info. Yeah, and it, it, it wasn't, I mean, the the report I heard was that there wasn't anything structurally wrong. With Alec, uh, with Alec Hansen. With Alec Hansen, right. So. Anything you wanted to add to that, Jim? <clears throat> well, they're, they're probably going to have, you know, they saved about $800,000 on Gray. Um, they they took a couple of college seniors at the end of the top ten rounds. I don't know if they're going to save a whole lot of money um, before that. You know, it's I don't know I don't know Hanson's signability, but you know they probably are at the point where they could pay a million dollars roughly to somebody after the tenth round. Um, you know, Serrano I don't think you know is going to sign for anywhere close to that. 
Um, you know, but maybe Hanson's that guy. If a million dollars gets it done, I got to tell you, I like their draft. Um, I like Ryan McMahon, their second pick. I like Alex Baylog. <laughs> I really like Sam Mole and Alex Baylog. As they're very similar guys, power college arms, Connor. Where maybe they start, but if they don't, you can definitely see those guys being uh, big league contributors. Uh, Jordan Patterson can hit, maybe not a true profile guy, but they're going to try him out in center field. Uh, I know you like Dom Nunez. I, I mean, Blake Schaus is one of my kind of almost cheese balls in this draft, a Juco uh, raw-armed uh, kid out of uh, Middle Georgia Junior College, a pitcher who's got a good body and a uh, feel for spin uh, despite a real inexperience. And then Terry McClure, I mean, this is a guy who was pretty big deal in the showcase circuit, was, showcase circuit was he not? Yeah, he was. No, I think that was a, a great value there at eight. You know, it was nice to see Alan Matthews get a few guys here in the top ten rounds. He's got three boys. Uh, yeah. Alan, of course, a former VA staffer, and been a Rocky scout now for five, six years, and has a big leaguer in uh, Charlie Blackman. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, about Dom Nunez, I thought it was really interesting that they drafted him as a third baseman because this is a guy who, you know, he played shortstop, he committed to UCLA as a shortstop, but he converted back to catcher this year. Right. And everything I heard from scouts was that he was really good back there. I mean, he was athletic, soft hands, obviously a strong throwing arm, and – the, the bigger question on him was just how much – I mean, I don't think scouts were worried about his hit tool. They were worried about the power. Um, so drafting him as a third baseman is weird. But, you know, I'll be interested to see if they actually do try him out at catcher. One of the most fascinating things with the Rockies drafting him is that Dom Nunez's father played for Jerry Weinstein, who's now the, the Rockies catching coach. Yeah, and that's a great tidbit. And also, uh, this is a very similar situation – correct me if I'm wrong, Jim – to Nolan Arenado, whom they drafted – and who we wrote about in high school was a guy who was a catching conversion guy and had worked out behind the plate some, and teams were intrigued, and the hit tool was there, and people were questioning the power. And, you know, it just sounds ex- almost exactly the same without the Weinstein connections. Um, and Nolan Arenado's obviously worked out pretty well for the Rockies, too. Yeah, no, he definitely has. I, you know, I'll be honest. I don't even remember Arenado's catching background, to be honest with you. But I think, uh, we, I think that was a thing that we wrote about where we thought, that he had worked out for teams as a catcher, and that he, we thought that that was where he was going to wind up. Yeah, I was going to say, the thing I remember about Nolan Arenado is, is when they drafted him in the second round, I was talking to uh, Bill Schmidt about him, and uh, the Rockies scouting director, and Bill said, uh, you know, Bill's not a guy who usually you know pumps up his guys a lot or, or, or makes bold proclamations. He's pretty close to the vest, and Bill just said, uh, you guys are a little bit late on your Nolan Arenado rankings. That kid's pretty good, So, which, which from <laughs> Bill is very effusive praise, and uh, he turned out to be correct on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, 59th pick overall in 2009, and uh, off to a nice start in the big leagues. And I just remember El Toro High is fun to, fun, to, fun to talk about. It's a Baseball America podcast with John and Connor and Jim. Uh, Jim, I mentioned earlier, leading into that question, that I thought that Chris Bryant was the first surprise of the draft. I mean, obviously, the second overall pick. Uh, how surprised were you that the Cubs went with Chris Bryant? Did that stun you at all, considering you do the Cubs? Stuff and you seem like you'd been hearing all along they were going to take a pitcher. Um, it didn't stun me. I mean, yeah, it's looking back. I mean, you, you know, when I'm doing my mock drafts, you know, I want to try to get as many of these right as possible. And I think I, I thought myself, I, I knew the Astros preferred, Mar, had a slight preference to Mark Appel. And I was saying all along that, I mean, because of the situation, you know, they'd have Scott Boris and company would have to handle him a little bit differently and, and maybe give a rough number. And I should have gone with the Pell at one. And, you know, with the Cubs and Brian at two, I mean, I, I've said a thousand times on Twitter and radio shows, I'll be shocked if they won't take a pitcher. I'll be shocked if they won't take a pitcher. 
And, you know, I still had some people saying, don't be surprised if they go for Chris Bryant. And I think if Mark Appel was there, too, I think the Cubs might have taken Mark Appel. Um, but, you know, Chris Bryant, I mean, I, personally, I would have taken the pitchers one, too, because I think pitching's harder to find. But there's, there's nothing wrong with taking Chris Bryant there. I mean, he's got ridiculous power. You know, he out-homered something like three-quarters of the NCAA Division One teams. I think he profiles at third base or the outfield, even if he has to move positions. And, you know, you generally can't find a college hitter with that kind of power. Um, so, I, you know, I, I just thought, you know, I kept projecting them to take a pitcher because that's their biggest need. But they, they took, obviously, the best guy on their board, and that was Chris Bryant. Yeah, I think that worked out. Uh, I think that will work out well for them. I, I love Chris Bryant. Uh thought he was the best player in this draft. But when it was all said and done, uh, I'm going to go with, as you do when you write your column, Jim, with your uh, mock, with your fake draft. I'm going to go with my, my national uh, college cross-checker, Aaron Fitt. And he's, he saw Appel, he saw Gray, he saw Brian. He liked Brian best. So, um, we, sh- we should have had that discussion in the BA 500. You know, Aaron should have been a little more strident uh, in our BA 500 meeting because I, pro- I probably would have gone with him uh, with Brian. But the top three players went, went where they went. Brian was the top college hitter available. Uh, Hunter Dozier was one of the next guys available in terms of college hitters. Uh, Connor, I don't think we thought that he would go ahead of the likes of a DJ Peterson, for example, but he did. He went eighth overall. Obviously, the Royals were convicted in him. Jim's written a pretty convincing column. I think we both, especially once they got Sean Mania at 34, it was very evident to, what, to us what they were doing. If you can't sign Mania at 34, you take a less of a hit yeah. on your bonus pool. All that stuff makes sense. When it's all said and done, how do you think things turned out for the, for the Royals? You seem like they got some criticism locally, which I kind of get as the draft is going on, but then once they got Mania, that some of that criticism should have been very muted, but it, apparently it wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, initially it, when you, when they first made the Hunter Dozier pick, that was a little surprising, but then when you wait an hour and step back and get to see the bigger picture for them, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously there's a little bit of a gamble. You're, you're hoping that Mania can get to you down there and nobody else kind of sneaks in and takes him. Cause then you could be, it could really backfire on you. But uh, the fact that it worked out, and they were able to get Cody Reed, another guy who had a little late first-round buzz. I mean, yep. I, I like I like their draft overall. Yeah, we definitely heard that Reed uh, had a chance to go in the first 50 picks, and there he went, right at 46. And Jim, they clearly uh, the Royals uh, may increase their chances of signing Shamanai. I thought, and uh, you know, not just obviously they signed Dozier, they already signed Reed, but rounds uh, six through nine, all college seniors. And then round 10, a junior college player who wasn't eligible this spring. So it's going to be hard to find a more signable group than the Royals 6 through 10. Yeah, and even their fifth-round pick was a high schooler, but he wasn't on the BA 500, so I don't know know, how expensive he's going to be. You can't just call him a high schooler. You have to pronounce his name. Uh, Amalani Fuku Fuka. Actually, she's going to come after me now. But uh, anyway... uh, no, I mean, it was all their draft was about strategy. I mean, they really liked Hunter Dozier. You could make an argument, you know, after Chris Bryant and Colin Moran were off the board, that if you wanted a guy who could play a valuable defensive – I mean, I'm not going to say he's a better hitter than D.J. Peterson, but, you know, he offers more defensive value, and he's a pretty good hitter. Yep. Um, you know, and you could take a discount with him. And they knew they couldn't get Dozier at 34. You know, they considered actually taking Manai at 8. But, you know, if they do that, then you don't get Dozier at 34, and then Mania takes up a bigger chunk of your bonus pool if he doesn't sign. So, um, you know, I think what they're going to do, I, I think they'll get Mania done, and I think Mania is going to get done fairly quickly. And it could be somewhere between 
between three and four million dollars, which is amazing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I will say this: if he gets paid like that, I'm happy for Sean Manaya because one thing he did this year. Yeah, and, and you know, I've been as guilty as this as anybody. You know, writing about okay, the stuff's down. He hasn't been the same guy in the Cape. It's it's really only one plus pitch. He's not the most athletic. You know, this guy could have been the number one overall pick, and now he's not going to be. I, I will say this about Sean Mania: he he could have very easily shut himself down for a while and just said, "Look, I'm not 100 percent. This is killing my draft stock. This isn't helping me." Um, and instead, he tried to pitch every week for Indiana State. And the only time he didn't take the ball was in the MVC tournament. When he, you know, was on the mound warming up and just said, "My shoulders starting to stiffen up. I, I can't pitch." So, so for Shum and I, I you know, I, I hope he gets paid handsomely because he he didn't try to, you know, he he tried to help his team. I guess is what I'm saying. And instead of putting himself in front of the team, and sometimes you see that in the draft where the guy puts his draft concerns ahead of the team, and and Shum and I didn't do that and hurt his draft stock. But I don't think it's going to hurt his checkbook uh, when all is said and done. That's a great point. And uh, I think it's a, a point that needs to be made. And uh, you know, with the increased scrutiny on these players, uh, becomes uh, increased criticism. And I think sometimes you do have to remember kind of what the position these guys are in. And Shamanaya, I mean, even with his stuff down and all that stuff, for Indiana State, they needed him. And he had a 147 ERA this year. He was still in the top five in the country, Connor, in strikeouts per nine. So he wasn't as good as he was in the Cape. He was still plenty good in the context of his team and what his team needed out of him. And uh, I, I agree with Jim completely that he, you know, he kind of went to the post for his team, which I think is uh, was, which is pretty awesome. We also had a Twitter question about it. Um, if I could find it here, I already lost it, Connor. My eyes are playing tricks on me. It was uh, J, it was Japers four thirteen. Assuming he signs, where would Sham and I rank among the Royals' top overall prospects? Connor, uh, what do you have? And Jim, I know you had an SBA question about this, but you know, I guess the Royals right now, Bubba Starling or Donna Ventura, Adalberto Mondesi. Yeah, where where would Manaya rank among those guys? Yeah, I think he'd probably fit into the top, you know, three or four right. somewhere. I mean, obviously, you know, it depends on if he's able to get back out there and yeah. see what he's like. But I think, you know, you could still, you know, gamble on the upside and, and stick him into that top group. The Royals farm system isn't quite what it used to be. Right, right. It's still not it's not bad, but that's still that's a nice group of elite possible elite prospects. But all those guys have some question marks, Jim. I mean, you're a Bubba, you're a Bubba Starling guy. Who would you rather have, Shamanaya or Bubba Starling? Who would you rank as the top, uh, as a, uh, you know, among those two guys on a Royals prospect list? That's kind of a tough question. Um, I would take Shamanaya over him, assuming he returns to health. I mean, he's not going to pitch this summer because he needs labrum surgery on his hip, which isn't really a long-term concern. Um, you know, I think part of that would depend on how well Bubba Starling performs. I mean, I, I, I try to, you know, when we're lining prospects up, not punish guys because they've had a chance to fail and other guys haven't. You know, in other words, Manaya's not going to be able to go out and do anything and, and look good or bad, where, you know, Bubba Starling's out, out there, you know, having contact problems but still showing great athleticism. I I mean, I would probably put him behind Mondesi for sure right now. I mean, Adalberto Mondesi might, might be their, their top prospect in their system right now. Yeah, I tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, that whole uh, Lexington team, and Bubba's hitting 204, that's almost team average. A team average for Lexington is 218 last I checked, which is uh, I don't know how much of that you could put on Bubba, but uh, but again, here's this draft process. You know, who used to know when you took a guy and two years later you knew what he was hitting in the South Atlantic League? Only Baseball America print edition readers used to know that. Now it seems like everybody knows it. Um, you know, there's just there's just a higher level of scrutiny, and again, I just that uh, it complements uh, what Sean and I was able to do. Let's take a couple other Twitter questions here while we uh, talk about the first round of draft and we talk MLB draft on the BA podcast. Uh, Matthew Wines asks, do the Padres have a chance to sign any of their tough signs after the 10th round? 
um, while we all scramble to go to our uh, <laughs> as we all scramble to go to our uh, draft database uh, at baseballamerica.com. Uh, Jim, uh, what do you think of the Padres draft in general? Obviously, uh, I'm excited about it with Hunter Renfro at the top, but uh, you know who could they sign? That's a tough sign after the t- after the tenth round. I, you know, they announced something like 20 signings yesterday. Obviously, not, not big, you know, big big money guys, but you know, any of their their guys who are ranked high in the BA 500, I just don't think it's going to happen. You know, Connor Jones, the Virginia yep. high school pitcher they took in the 21st round, uh, that that guy's as un signable as anybody in this draft. I and mean, that guy was a borderline first round pick if you were signable. You know, Chris Oakey, the, the high school catcher from Florida, I think we all had pegged as, as kind of a second round pick, second or third round pick. The fact that he goes in the thirty first round kind of tells me that, that what he was asking for didn't match up with where he was going to go in the draft, so I wouldn't think he'd be signable. And and then Garrett Williams, the the high school lefty uh from Louisiana, who we had again ranked as kind of a second or third round pick, um uh, you know, I, I don't. I, from what I've heard, I don't think that guy's signable at all either. You know, it, I mean, the general rule of thumb for the listeners is if you're looking at a guy, especially a guy who we had ranked to say a top 100 overall prospect, a guy who's going to go in the top three rounds, if those guys don't go in the top 10 rounds with this new system, I, I'm not sure anybody, any of those guys signed last year, anybody we had ranked in the top 100 who didn't go in the top 10 rounds. I mean, they're just not going to be signable. Because, I mean, I would assume without knowing the signability specific and the numbers on those guys, that they all were looking for at least seven figures and, and in some cases, you know, maybe maybe even two million. And, you know, you're just not going to be able to really put that together for them that late. I mean, you're looking at the top of their draft. I mean, Hunter Renfro is going to be a guy who signs for round slot. You know, they, they took two talented high school players from the next two picks. Those aren't going to be discount guys. Um, you know, I don't think there's going to be a lot of discounts in this draft. And then they may sign a guy here and there for – for three hundred or four hundred thousand after the tenth round, but I just don't see how they can pony up the money for those guys. And Connor, you did uh, speaking of Chris Oakey earlier. You talked to him dur- earlier in the year about his college commitment, his ties. His ties to Clemson are very deep. Yeah. So I mean, they run like generational, a couple generations back. I mean, if anybody who knows anything about Clemson, uh, you know, he his crazy his grandfather founded IPTE, yeah. which stands for I Pay Ten a Year, but it's their booster club. Um, so that's kind of a <laughs> kind of a big deal. Um, so I, I, at that time, it seemed like you, he he was cagey about assignability because he clearly wanted to keep his options open. But I don't think this guy has any qualms about going to uh, about going to Clemson. But you thought they had a they, they, you thought they did have a guy who could sign after those first ten rounds in that Padres list. No, I I don't know. I was actually going to ask Jim if if you heard anything about uh, Tony Rizzotti dropping. Yeah, the kid from uh, yeah, the, the pitcher think... from Tulane, Tony Rizzotti. Yeah, he used to be at TCU, and I think he went to. Um... Grayson County Community College in between. I mean, when he's healthy, his stuff's real good. I mean, I think that might be a, a health issue, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, he's had. I mean, John, I think. Yeah. I mean, he's had knee surgeries, I think, before this year, a couple of them, and then uh, I think he had some kind of what was it back issues this year? Something like that. Just the, the fog of the draft. I'm not recalling my Tony Rosati injury uh, list right now. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. But but yeah. So anyway, I think with him, I mean, I mean that that's the type of guy you know who I was talking about. You know. If Tony Rosati, and again, I don't know his specific signability number, they could probably pay Tony Rosati five hundred thousand dollars. You know, if he's healthy, if they feel like he's healthy enough to warrant that. Um, you know, we had him paid as kind of a, a fifth to seventh round pick, which isn't exactly five hundred thousand dollar territory. But you know, that would be one. You know, I'm sure they've got to look at the medical and make a determination on that. Yeah, he definitely was a guy who came out of the gates really good, and it was yeah. back spasms late in the year. So that's. 
for, to answer the Twitter question, if you're looking for someone after the 10 rounds, he's the, I would say he's more likely, much more likely, as Jim said, than Connor Jones or Garrett Williams or Chris Oakey. And truth be told, Garrett Williams probably wound up being overranked. You know, between May, the first week of May, when we put our top 500 together, and later I should have been more aggressive as the person who has responsibility for that part of the country to move him down our BA 500. He should have come down because he, he was backing up uh, closer to like 150. Um, I remember the night before, two nights before, the uh, we had to finalize the BA 500. He had a playoff start, and I had a reporter down in Shreveport who I know was telling me, J- Jason Pugh was telling me, nah, this guy's really not finishing the year very strong at all. And, you know, it was always very academic, was going to go to Vanderbilt, and then Josh Holliday uh, left Vanderbilt to go to Oklahoma State. And I think to the surprise of some people, he decided to just follow Josh Holliday to Oklahoma State, which I don't think people think of academically in the same capacity that they think of, or the same category they think of as Vanderbilt. But Garrett Williams really wants to go to school, and he uh, we're pretty confident now he's going to go to Oklahoma State. Um Good. We've talked about some drafts that we liked. I think we both seem like we like the Padres draft a little bit. It's kind of a you know it's a decent upside there. We like the Rockies. Connor, what are some of the drafts that, that who are some of the clubs that you thought did well for themselves, not just in the first round but overall? Yeah, I really like the Diamondbacks draft overall. I think getting Braden Shipley at fifteen, I really like that. I mean, he was a guy who I think could have been drafted as high as fourth, you know. And so I, I really like them getting at fifteen. Then they followed it up with Aaron Blair, uh, you know, another. Good college righty, man. Yeah, if you're looking good. for this is a draft that was short on good college pitching. Right. They got one of the most athletic college pitchers, probably the most athletic college pitcher in Shipley. Yeah. Guy with a fresh arm, and then they got a, a workhorse guy and Blair, who's one of the he was the top performer really on the Cape, other than Mania last summer, and was pretty consistent this year for Marshall. Yeah, I just really like kind of uh they they got a little bit of everything. They got some pitching, they got some power with uh Daniel Palka and Justin Williams. They got some speed with Matt McPherson, Colin Bray. Uh and then, you know, I like some of their later picks. I love Jimmy Scherf in the tenth round. I think um, you know, if they can sign Dave McFarland, he's a real tool the outfielder from Southern California. I've always been a Elvin Soto guy. I like him and I like uh, Adam Miller in the twentieth round is a really hard throwing, you know, reliever from Brigham Young. So I, I like I really like what the Diamondbacks did. I would say that was probably my favorite overall draft. You have always liked uh, Elvin Soto. Been on that guy for a few years, which is good. But, I mean, like, it's hard to find good catchers. And that guy, I don't think it's a coincidence that you have a good catcher like that. And Pittsburgh has his best year they've had. They win 40 games. It probably should have been an NCAA tournament team. Um, you know, catchers tend to have a little bit of an outsized um, influence on the game. So, I mean, they got some college performers, uh, a, a deep-cut personal cheese ball that a guy I can't believe I left off my Florida list. Their 12th rounder, Taylor, 13th rounder, Taylor Ratliff, will be very interesting. Uh, we ranked them, I believe he may have made the B.A. top 200 out of high school, out of Perry, Florida, kind of in the armpit there of Florida. It's a small town. He's kind of a big, uh, a big hero in a small town. Uh, went to the University of Jacksonville for his first two seasons. And then, you know, Jacksonville last year, that, that team just collapsed, and they weren't very good again this year. Um, and so he transferred after that bad year last year to Florida and did not get the waiver. So he was ineligible. He had to sit out this year as a transfer for Florida. The Gators really could have used him, obviously. And um, so I wonder if he'll if he's signable, because if he's not, you know, obviously Florida's really expecting him next year to play, and that would be a pretty big blow for the Gators. So I'm really intrigued. They had to have, I think, some decent info that he was signable there in the 13th round. And he's interesting. They have him listed as an outfielder. He played shortstop at Jacksonville. Some he played some third base. He played some outfield. 
mostly he's just an athlete, a wiry, some wiry athleticism. Um, I'm with you, Connor. I thought they got really good value on some of their uh, college relievers. They took Daniel Gibson and Jimmy Scherfe. I got a good report on Brad Keller, of course, after the draft. Brad Keller was one of the guys in the first 10 rounds I didn't have a scouting report on um, in the state of Georgia. But post-draft, um, I had a pretty good re- uh, report on this guy. First off, he's a long toss choker, which is always good. Second of all, he's got a big body. I mean, he's like, uh, you know, we have him listed at 6'5", 230. Mm. Third of all, um, a guy who was committed to Presbyterian, but just got better and better and better as the spring went on. And, uh, you know, reports of him touching 96, pretty consistent, 88 to 91, 92 fastball. Um, and, and there's some more in there. So I thought that was a pretty intriguing deep cut guy there in the eighth round, a guy that I miss. Always give kudos to the teams that take guys who weren't on our list anywhere. You know, you got to give – especially if they work out. So we'll watch kind of what happens uh, with Brad Keller. But, like, you know, Colin Bray, the guy them where they should get Colin Bray. Right. You, know, you want speed in your draft? Boy, I want to see Colin Bray and Matt McPherson run – run 60s against each other yeah those are probably the fastest high school guy and maybe the fastest college guy in the draft right i mean were those guys our top two guys on our best tools i think they were i think they were too yeah and then you know jamie westbrook i really like that guy it's uh tough for pepperdine to see him already signed but uh right. you know he's kind of just a solid all-around player can do a little bit of everything and and, and for raw power justin williams and daniel Polka. right yeah, That's, those guys are right there. They, they, got, got, they the got a little bit of everything. They got some tools. They got some performance guys. They got a little bit of everything, and that's why I like their class the best. I'm with you. I think that was a really good class. We actually have a question from Norbert. Norbert uh, I'm brutalizing your name. Norberto Paulino. Uh, Norberto asks, why do we think Shipley dropped to the middle of the first round? Jim, uh, was it just a matter of he was uh, one, two, or three on a lot of teams' lists, and it just his name just never wound up being at the top of the list for a team that uh, just is that the, just kind of the way the draft board fell? Or was there something about Braden Shipley that caused him to fall to 15? No, no, it, it was more the former. Um, you know, I think had the draft played out a little bit more like we expected and Colin Moran had gone fifth to the Indians, I think there's a good chance the Marlins would have taken Shipley at six. Um, I think the Red Sox were on him, but not. I think they wanted a higher ceiling guy. They went with Trey Ball. You know, I think Kansas City was, was definitely looking for, for, for a pitcher, and they really wanted Cole Stewart, who didn't fall to him. But then I think they decided if they didn't get Cole Stewart, they were better off doing the strategy we talked about earlier, which is take Dozier at eight and get Sean Manaya at 34, um, you know, successfully gambling that nobody else would take him in the first round. You know, Phil Bickford was their other guy. Um, you know, and I think Shipley was in the mix, but you, you know, I think the Blue Jays went for Bickford's upside, and then you had the teams at 11 through 14 kind of jumped on those position players. You know, it, it, it wasn't a good year for position players, and you, you saw a nice run of. Dominic Smith, D.J. Peterson, Hunter Renfro, and Reese McGuire, where the team's got those guys. And, and then Shipley, you know, at 15, you know, a lot of times guys will go to the team that likes them the most. And also they'll go to the high end of where they're going to go. Like if we talk about a guy being a, a second to fourth round pick, he'll go in the second round. Or if we'll say somebody could go 15 to 30, he'll usually go closer to 15 because it'll be a team that really likes him on the top end that will, that will pop the kid. But I think in Shipley's case, it was just one of those odd scenarios where the reverse was true, where he really went about as low as he could go. And he's, I mean, obviously this is apples and oranges, but whenever I think of that scenario, I always think of Jacoby Ellsbury in 2005, yeah. where from about pick 15 on, I think the Red Sox took him at 23, I think Jacoby might literally have been plan B for all but one of the teams that picked ahead of the Red Sox, but they all had one guy they liked a little bit more, and I think that's what happened to Shipley. The other, um, I guess we, we start off talking about a little bit about first-round surprises. 
The other kind of, I guess, the first round surprises were that Connor, we probably never would have guessed that in this draft, we were just talking about Shipley's college right-hander power arm. I don't think any of us would ever have guessed that Ryan Stanek would get drafted after Christian Arroyo. Uh, Christian Arroyo is uh, from a, both of these guys are performers. Arroyo, a high school bat performer. No, probably nobody performed um, on high school hitters like this guy did last summer for a USA team. I mean, not, but, but was never considered a consensus first rounder. And that's fair to say because of the body, when I looked at it, obviously when I watched the video, I honestly, like the first person I thought of was almost like a Honus Wagner because <laughs> he's like kind of barrel chested and pigeon toed and a gymnast body. Yeah. It's yeah. a different physique for a middle infielder. It's not bad. Obviously if I'm comping him to physically to Honus Wagner, I'm not really doing that. I'm just saying that's what, right. it, that's what right. brought to mind. Um, but I don't think anyone thought that he would go over Ryan Stanick. And I think, I don't think it shocked us that Stanick fell. He was a guy that didn't seem like scouts wanted to feel good about him, but like the, the sum was seemed like for scouts that it was less than the whole of the parts. But I'm still shocked that he went four spots after Arroyo. I mean, you've seen a lot of Christian Arroyo. What's the good and what's the reason that he wasn't a consensus first rounder in your estimation? I mean, the good is that you know he, he's he's been on the big stage. He played with USA. He's played in a ton of the sh- you know performed well in a lot of the showcases last year, and then played well this this spring in Florida. But uh, you know he can do a little bit of everything. He's a solid defender. Uh, makes the plays. You know he's a he's a good line drive hitter. Uh, but he, he's just not a real sexy player. I mean, he doesn't do anything that really wows you. Um, you know, you kind of thought he'd just be a, a solid guy instead of a, a potential star. And I think for me, when you're making a first round pick, you know, I, I like to see teams roll the dice on upside instead of going with a, maybe a more safer, you know, contributor kind of guy. And they aren't moving him to catcher. You know, our information is they're going to try to keep him in the middle infield. John Bars talked about it. They see him as an infielder, you know, see how that goes, shortstop, second base, whichever, maybe third base. Um, but Jim, how much of that kind of floor you? It sounded like you had heard the Arroyo rumblings leading up to draft day. Yeah, there, there were some Arroyo rumblings, and you know, I talked about this on the on the MLB Network broadcast. I mean, with the Giants, you know, the Giants pretty much keep to themselves. I mean, you you don't get a lot out of the Giants about what they're looking at or or who they might pick, um, and, and they don't care where anybody's ranked. I mean, their second round pick, you know, Ryder. Jones was ranked, you know, I think about 197 on the BA 500, and and they, I mean, I think I said this on the broadcast, they kind of like who they like, they don't care what anybody else thinks, they, you know, don't run with the pack at all, and, you know, obviously they've they've made a few good decisions because they won two of the last three World Series, and with Stanek, I mean, it seems like every year there's one college pitcher who falls a little bit more than we expect, and, and I, you know, he was a hard guy to place when I was doing the mock draft because, Usually on these guys, there's kind of a consensus range. Like, if he gets to this range, you know, all these teams are going to be on him. But with Stanek, I mean, there was interest. I wasn't hearing a whole lot of interest in the top 10. I think 11 is where where I heard the interest, you know, 11 and 12 with the Mets and Mariners. But it wasn't a case that, like, okay, if he falls out of the top 10, everybody's going to be on him. It was, okay, these couple teams like him, these couple teams don't. These couple teams seem to be on him. These couple teams don't. I, I just don't think he was a consensus guy. And I think part of that is, you know, he, he's been inconsistent. I mean, it, it's funny. If, if we had the draft right after the SEC tournament, I, I think he might have gone about 10 spots higher at least because he was great in the SEC tournament. And then in the in the regionals, he, he was just okay. I think, he, you know, he, he went into the same thing, only gave up a couple runs, but he didn't really strike guys out and battled his command. 
And I think that hurt him a little bit. He's inconsistent. I think some people look at him more as a reliever than as a starter. But again, I mean, under the the only takes one team theory, and usually get drafted by the team that likes you the most. I'm just surprised. I mean, there's teams out there that looked at him as a starter, looked at him as kind of the the third or fourth. Uh, best college starting pitcher in a year that wasn't good for college starting pitchers. Uh, there's some whispers that are might, and I don't even know where this would have come from. And, you know, somebody's tweeted, oh, you know, there could be some elbow issues with him. I, you know, I don't know if there was an MRI that somebody did that that, that was a red flag, but um, but that one did baffle me. I I, I thought he would have gone higher than that. It, you know, I think one of the things that might hurt him too, and we talked about this before the draft, is there was a real lack of position players, and there was a ton of depth in college pitching, not first-round college pitching, but kind of second- and third-round college pitching. And I do think, and I haven't counted this up, but I, I do think there was a number of teams looking to go ahead and get one of the premium position guys in round one while they were still there and figured, you know what, we might not get the same you know, guy, we, you know, the same college pitcher we could get, say, at, at 16 to 20, but we can get a pretty comparable college pitcher in round two and a pretty comparable college pitcher to that guy in round three. Right. And so I think maybe that, you know, people – said, you know what, I, I kind of like Ryan Stanek, but I want to get a position guy. And if I don't get Stanek, I can get something pretty close to him in round two. I think the guy, the two things that I think are bad signs for Ryan Stanek are that two of the scouting directors and evaluators that I think know pitching the best had shots at him. Uh, 18, the Dodgers, and they took another college pitcher. I think Logan White knows pitching very well, knows what he likes, knows what he doesn't like, knows what he thinks his development people can fix. And they took Chris Anderson instead. And Chris Anderson had a good start and a not-so-great finish and faced much lower competition in the Atlantic Sun. And the Dodgers chose Chris Anderson. Maybe signability is a factor in there, too, but they gave him more than $2 million. So that's not a great sign. And then, again, the Giants, I, I think I even tweeted that night, like, if anybody – if there are issues with the mechanics for Ryan Stanick and you think as a pitching evaluator that you can add something to his package – that allows that 92-98 fastball and that 84-87 slider to get more swings and misses. If anybody can do that, it's the Ninja. It's Dick Tidrow. They passed over him. But then I do feel what mitigates it a little bit for me is they went to the Rays, and the Rays have done a great job with uh, the pitcher, pitcher development, whether it's their own guys or guys that get in trade. So um, he's, he's definitely, I think, he's just one of the harder guys to, to size up uh, from this draft class. So. Uh, one of the tougher guys. Um, Norberto actually asked another question on Twitter that I thought we could take. Uh, was anyone, were any of us surprised when the Red Sox went with Trey Ball? It didn't seem like Connor a name that we thought they were necessarily on. Um, but Trey Ball, uh, Trey Ball, I don't think anybody's surprised that this guy with that combination of size, athleticism, twitchiness, all those things. Yeah. Certainly no surprise that in this draft class that he went seventh overall. Right. No, I mean, I think they really would have loved – you know, Cole Stewart or, or Clint Frazier or Colin Moran, but those guys went the three picks before them. So, uh, no, Trey Ball doesn't doesn't surprise me. I mean, I mean he's an athletic left-hander with a fastball that gets up to 94 and a, a curveball that really improved this year. So those guys are always going to be premium picks. It didn't really surprise me that much. Jim, how'd you like the uh, what the Red Sox did overall with Trey Ball? How does kind of he fit into this? I mean, they ended up getting. Two of the highest-ranked uh, high school players on our list, Trey Ball, <clears throat> excuse me, and Oklahoma catcher Jonathan Denny. Yeah, no, it's um, – and, you know, getting back to the Trey Ball thing, I mean, I, I think Connor hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think the guy they really lusted after was Cole Stewart, and I think Clint Frazier or Colin Moran would have been their pick. Um, you know, but, but, you know, Connor nailed his scouting report, too. Um, I think Trey Ball is going to sign for slightly under slot because I think he was – 
I think the teams behind the Red Sox were locked in on a couple other guys, and he was probably going 10 to 13. So they're going to save a little bit of money with him. That They saved a little bit with Teddy Stankiewicz in the second round, and they're going to use that money probably to get Jonathan Denny done in the third round. They're probably going to need a little bit extra money too. But, I mean, Denny was a guy who – we thought was going to be a first-round pick. You know, MLB thought he was going to be a first-round pick because they invited him to the draft broadcast. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what happened there. I mean, I heard he had some workouts that weren't tremendous, um, you know, down the stretch. And, you know, his spring wasn't horrible. Maybe it wasn't quite everything people hoped for. But, I mean, the expectation was that guy was going in the first round or, or maybe the sandwich round. You know, maybe his, you know, his number's a little bit high and it spooks some people. But, I'd be very surprised with as aggressive as the Red Sox are, and they took a lot of seniors, uh, you know, in, in rounds six through ten or, or seven through ten. I'd, I'd be very surprised if they don't get Denny done. I mean, that may cost them some money. It's, you know, I, I kind of like their draft. I mean, I, I thought they got three pretty good players right there off the top in Ball, Stankiewicz, and Denny. You know, Miles Smith throws hard. Corey Latrell is one of the better college lefties in this draft, and you know, I, I don't think they can pull it off. But they they drafted two you know, potential first, second round talents after the 10th round in, in Jordan Sheffield, who might have been a first rounder if he hadn't had Tommy John surgery, and Ryan Bolt, yep. who, you know, has a big signability number that, that dropped him all the way down to 22nd round. They, they probably can't get those guys done, but, but knowing the Red Sox and how aggressive they are, my, my guess is, that, you know, they may get a few of these guys done after the 10th round for a couple hundred thousand dollars, too. They definitely took some of the most intriguing guys after the first 10 rounds, Connor, a guy that you were... Uh, definitely intri- intrigued by when during as the draft was going on was draft Jeff Driscoll, yeah, who was a top hundred caliber talent out of high school, but graduated a semester early to enroll early enrollee at Florida as a football guy, has only played football for the Gators, but there's some real athleticism there. Obviously, and uh, you know he was a guy that uh, I think you saw on the showcases. I saw him. And, and saw him good. Yeah, I saw him at, at PG National. The first time I ever went to PG National, I saw him, and he really impressed me because he's a big physical athlete, had some power potential. Obviously, he has some arm strength, but and, and I didn't realize at the time that he was a big football guy. So I'm, I'm sitting there going, man, this guy's exciting when, when probably all the scouts, you know, are going, oh, yeah, well, there's no chance, you know. I mean, he's <laughs> going early to Florida, but it uh, sounds like, you know, his NFL prospects aren't, you know, aren't, aren't great. He's not, you know, a, a sure thing NFL pick. So it'll be interesting to see if they can, uh, you know, they, they took some your some football players last year and, and worked out some deals to let those guys play football and baseball, and, and it looks like they're trying to do the same thing again this year. Jim, I know that so you so you just like we like the Red Sox draft. Uh Connor talked about liking uh you know the draft that uh, the, Diamondbacks. The, the Diamondbacks had. Thank you. Um I'll tell you I kinda like the Pirates draft. I don't think I've ever said that before. <laughs> Maybe I have. Uh I kinda like what the Pirates did though. Um got some interesting guys, got some upside in the first ten rounds. I, I know I really liked their first day with Reese McGuire and Austin Meadows at nine and fourteen that I I like where they got Jacoby Jones. I like where they got Cody Dixon. Um, pretty interesting guys that they got. They they uh, took some high school shortstop. They took the, they took Adam Frazier in the sixth round, the uh, top four year college shortstop, which is kind of sad. But you know, um, really more of like a solid uh, guy, maybe even a utility guy than an everyday shortstop. But uh, what was your take on what Pittsburgh did? I, I thought they they came out pretty good in this draft. Yeah, I did too. I, I do think. I do think the teams that have the the multiple picks or the, or the high picks, yeah. we're always going to like. You know, yep, like no I, I knew, I knew I was going to like what Pittsburgh did. You know, and I thought they got. I wasn't sure Meadows was going to get to him, and I thought they might take McGuire at nine. Um, and he was sitting there for him at fourteen. I, I'll tell you, another team I kind of liked their draft um, uh, was the A's. Uh, you know, I, you know they didn't have, 
have a super high pick uh, in the first round, but they got Billy McKinney, who's one of the best bats. They got Dylan Overton, who, who's I think a very polished college lefty, who who you know had a little bit of arm issues toward the end of the season. His stuff was down a little bit, but when he was on, I mean, you're talking about polish and stuff. They got, they got two more good college bats in Chad Pinder and Ryan Healy. You know, interesting high school pitcher in Chris Kohler. You know, maybe you could turn Dylan Covey back around. I mean, that guy was once first round pick. You know, and I think the key to, or not the key because I like their draft but like somebody who could really make their draft is if you know they can sign Bobby Wall yep. in the seventh round then that's a tremendous draft you know and I think Dustin Driver's a guy who you know was a first or second round pick coming into the year and you know I think they're going to get him done he's I don't think he's officially done but he's already tweeting that he's uh that he's signing a contract and coming an A so they're going to get that one done I, I just thought they did a nice job throughout their draft I agree with you. Uh, I like their picks, not just because they took Ryan Healy higher than Matt Oberstie went, significantly higher, actually, than Matt Oberstie went. But um, uh, but I like their draft just for the reasons you said. I mean, like Wall and Covey, at the, the, Covey in the fourth round, Wall in the fifth, Driver in the seventh, kind of they got three potential power right-handed arms. Yeah. Um, and, boy, you know, the A's, uh, what can you say about their pitching development? It's outstanding. Straley, A.J. Griffin, the contributions those guys have made, those weren't even supposed to be power arms. Those guys have been – Solid big league starters for them, and they just—they've been doing it for a long time now. So, some real high upside arms to go with McKinney, Pender, Healy, uh, the bats they got. I like this class. I like it too. And, and one thing I really like is they did the same thing as they did last year. They didn't, you know, try and get cute and pick a bunch of seniors and move money around. They—they they played the board straight, and they got, you know, they picked players in the BA 500 with their top, you know, it looks like 12 of their top uh, 14 picks. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think they got a, a really nice group. You know, maybe they can, you know, we'll see if they can make runs at some of these guys later in the draft. But uh, I like what, even if they can't, I like what they got, you know, with their top 10 picks. Jim, I think the other reason I know you like this draft is they took three dudes named AJ between rounds 31 and 35. Mm-hmm. Thinking how your son is AJ. You have a, spe- a special uh, affinity for the for the A's draft class, correct? Well, I think uh, AJ Callis may be more signable than AJ Venegas. But, you know, even <laughs> when they went seniors, you know, Matt Stalkup and Jared Grundy in rounds 9 and 10, those guys are good values there. And, and I'll, I'm probably mispronouncing them, but Tyler's, Tyler Marinkoff, you know, he kind of his scouting report intrigues me. You know, the athletic outfielder. And, you know, Dakota Free, you know, and there's some makeup issues on that kid. But, I mean, it's a tremendous arm. I mean, it's just it just seemed to me like like Connor was saying. I mean, every pick, you know, even when they re- they went and got a high school senior to get him a little flex. I mean, a, a college senior to give him a little flexibility. It just seemed like they got value pick after pick after pick. It, yeah. You know, not that, you know, we're the arbiter of who has a good draft and who has a bad draft and what's a good pick. But that was just a draft that every time they made a pick, I was like, you know what? I like that pick. I mean, there, there really weren't any picks there. You know, to, to really argue with. You know, Kyle Finnegan's another guy in the sixth round. I mean, you know, he's had some struggles at Texas State. But, I mean, that guy's got a huge arm. I mean, so it's it just you, you can look at every one of their picks, you know, through the 10 rounds. And then, you know, a lot of the, the guys in the teens were it was a bunch of interesting players. And, again, we're not the arbiters of these things. But I do think that a team that did not make us think the same thing is Toronto. I think that the Blue Jays have been – because we we got to talk about we've talked a lot of positives a lot of likes we got to, we have to be cr- we're critics as well so let's talk about some of the drafts that we didn't like as much and Toronto's the one that jumps out for me guys and Connor we talked about this I think off air several times but um, they again from going by the BA 500 in the first ten rounds there are only six of them there um, they definitely love Phil Bickford I'm, I'm I'm in on Phil Bickford he sounds really interesting definitely sounds like one of the highest upside high school arms in this draft. But this draft class feels like, boy, if Phil Bickford doesn't hit, they're in trouble. 
because Evan Smith in the fourth round, I mean, I didn't have him in the BA 500. I was probably a little light on him. But a 17-year-old, so he's young, left-hander from Alabama, but sounds extremely uh, raw. Um, one of the more raw guys, and definitely was not a consensus fourth-rounder, according to the people I talked to. Um, same thing, I, I assume, with Patrick Murphy, the high school right-hander out of Arizona, uh, from your area who wasn't in the BA 500. I, I just think this is a very risk-heavy draft class that really has a lot of eggs in the Phil Bickford basket. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you when you take so many pitchers, I mean, it just um, yeah, first hitter, tenth round, Garrett uh, Customs in the tenth round out of Air Force. Yeah, that that was the surprising thing for me. It was just pitcher after pitcher after pitcher, and and I do like some of those guys, but I, you know, there were just some uh, some some question marks for me. I mean, I like Clinton Holland, but I think that was a little rich for him. The Patrick Murphy pick surprised me because he's a guy who uh, didn't even pitch the spring. He had Tommy John surgery. Um, you know, and I like Matt Boyd. I think that was a great value for Matt Boyd. But I think just overall, you know, taking nine pitchers in the top ten picks, just just a little surprising. And Jim, I, I know I liked some of their lower picks. You know, like there's some upside there with a guy. Obviously, if they if they want to go crazy after round ten, they could go crazy on Rowdy Tellez. But again, like you said earlier, I mean, you really can't. You can only go but so crazy. Um, and Rowdy Tellez, pretty solid commitment uh, to to Southern Cal, right, Connery? So he's a yeah, USC he guy. is. But you know, but I think you know if if anyone's going going to um, you know manage the budget, I think the Blue Jays have shown that they right. You know, they they've had the ability to do that in the past, and I think they could make a run at him there. You know, one is, interesting thing about the the Tellez pick to the Blue Jays is they're they're one of maybe the only team that splits up NorCal, so they're hmm. they're. They have two scouts in NorCal, one as Bay Area and one as Sacramento. So their their wow. area scout there knows Tellez as well as anybody. Yeah, I mean that's that's their strategy, Jim and Connor. That's to have more area scouts, more information, more background. Like you wrote about with Patrick Murphy, they drafted Mitch Way out of uh, out of his uh, Mitch, Nay. Mitch Nay, thank you, out of his uh, same high school last year, Hamilton High, and so their area scout Blake Crosby, uh, younger brother of Bobby, uh, son of a scout. Had a long look at this guy. Oh, yeah. had, had history with Patrick Murphy. So, but Jim, uh, I don't know if you were. Uh, I'm not saying that the Blue Jays were the first one that I think of. They, they're the first ones I think of when I think of drafts I didn't like. I'm not saying they're the worst draft, but that's the first one I think of where uh, they were kind of the opposite of the A's. Where I'm like, wow, they did what? They picked who? Uh, but what, were you in that same boat with Toronto? Yeah, you know, I discussed him a little bit in the Ask BA column this week too. I mean, you know, I think the key of their draft is going to be if they can sign. You know, they drafted some big-time guys after the 10th round. They, they took Jake Brents. He was a lefty. He was up to 97 in, in the perfect game league in Iowa. Eric Lauer, who's kind of an athletic projectable lefty from Ohio. Sam Tevis, who, who's kind of a right-handed version of, of Lauer from Nebraska. And then you guys were talking about Rowdy Tellez. I, I don't know if they're going to be able to sign any of those guys. I mean, I think they're going to try. I, I think they need to get at least one or two of those guys. And I think Tellez would be a key because they didn't really draft a lot of position guys. But it'll be interesting to see what happens with Bickford because – Bickford, there were there was talk that Bickford's asking price before the draft was over four million dollars, and if that's his asking price, that's more than a million dollars over the slot at number ten. And I think that asking price, to be honest, is a reason that the the Royals didn't pick him at eight and decided they were going to take Dozier and see whether Bickford or Mania fell to him at thirty four. Um, you know, I think they're going to save a bunch of money on Clinton Holland because um, they did overdraft him a little bit. You know, they might save five hundred thousand there in round two. You, know, you guys talked about Murphy and Smith. Those guys don't sound to me like they're necessarily full freight in rounds three and four. You know, Juco guy in round five, senior in, in round six, 
seniors, I believe, in rounds eight, nine, and ten, um, you know, they could save a bunch of money. But if, if Phil Bickford eats up a bunch of that money, you know, I, I don't know how easy it is going to be be to sign these guys after tenth round. I, I will say. If I had to bet on one of those guys that they did sign, I think it's Jake Brents. I just don't think – I just think if you don't pitch for your high school in Missouri and you track to perform in the perfect game league in Iowa every week, I think you've got pro ball you know, in your sights. So my guess is that Jake Brents probably signs, but you know, it's, I think they need to get at least one or two of those guys after the 10th round to kind of – you make up, you know, it looks like they were aggressive and trying to shift money around again this year. And, you know, last year was easier to do because they had five picks before the second round. Very, it, it, it's fascinating to me that that's the way they, they went. And, uh, you know, we'll see how things obviously play out. We got, uh, we got some time. Was there another, you know, we have a lot of time to kind of evaluate these drafts. Was there another draft that uh, jumped out to you as, uh, you know, not, not, uh, not as exciting or just kind of more by, kind of by the book, Jim? Uh, I know that the, the two Los Angeles teams have the fewest, players in the BA 500, but again, the, the Angels took uh, and didn't have a first-round pick. Um, it, I guess to me, the Nationals was another team that just didn't uh, overwhelm me. A lot of riskier picks. I really was surprised that Jake Johansson out of Dallas Baptist was their first overall pick uh, the, in the second round, 68th overall. Um, just wasn't a draft that excited me a whole lot. Uh, I, I didn't think it was terrible, but I just, it just didn't do a ton for me. Um, you guys agree with the Nationals, or was it another team here or there that just underwhelmed you a little bit? Jim, the I'll, Angels I'll underwhelmed me, John. Pardon? Yeah, I was going to say, the, the, the Angels underwhelmed me. I mean, and again, I mean, the teams underwhelm you generally, the teams that don't have first-round picks, right. so they don't get a guy at the top. Uh, I did like how the Angels got Hunter Green, who we thought was a first-round talent, and they got him in the second round. But, I mean, after that, and again, I mean, I'm not claiming we know more than the teams, but our rankings are our rankings. You know, third round, they get number 319 on the BA 500 in Keenan Middleton. Fourth round, number 227. Fifth round, number 211. Sixth round, number 240. Seventh and eighth round were guys not ranked. I mean, they they literally did not draft another player after the second round who we had ranked higher than where he went until the 12th round in, in Blake Goyens. And I'm not sure how signable he's going to be. And you, know, and you brought up the Nationals. And again, you know, the Nationals are another team that didn't have a first round pick. I'm with you on Jake Johansson. I mean, he can throw. 98. Um, yeah, he could he could throw 98, but I'm not real sure he's more than a reliever. I mean, he hasn't had a lot of success at Dallas Baptist. There's not a lot of command or or secondary stuff. You know, the, the interesting thing on them, you know, I mean, I, I like some of their other guys behind that. I I thought went about what they should have gone. And you know, the real interesting one is their third round pick, Drew Ward, the the guy who entered the draft, you know, after what essentially was his high school senior year, and you know, has big time power, but also played against just just terrible high school competition in Oklahoma, so it was very hard to evaluate him. But, you know, didn't like the Johansson pick a ton, but, you know, you got Drew Ward, you know, and Nick Favetta's got some arm strength in the fourth round. You know, Austin Voth, nobody seems to, to barrel that guy up in the fifth round. And, and Cody Gunner's an interesting two-way guy in the sixth round, and you, know, you have a really good college performer in the seventh round in, in Jimmy Yezza. So, um, you know, the draft didn't blow me away, but but at least I thought the picks were kind of more, more representative, I guess. Connor, one common thing about both the Angels and the Nationals is they had less than $3 million in their bonus pool allotment, right. so, so I mean, that's natural. I think you like the Angels draft a little bit more than Jim because maybe because they took kind of three almost personal cheese balls a year yeah. with Middleton, Morris, and Kyle McGowan, who wasn't in your area, but you liked. Right. Yeah, that's the thing is you know both both these scouting directors were handcuffed a little bit in in the fact that they only you know they have less than three million dollars to spend. But I, I I did actually like what the Angels did. I liked their group of pitchers. Obviously, I like Hunter Green a lot, and like you said. 
Middleton, Morris, McGowan. Those guys really intrigued me, as does Harrison Cooney and, and, and Garrett, and Garrett Nuss. Nuss. We yeah. were uh, that's that's completely on me not having Garrett Nuss in the 500. That was a guy I meant to write up and just just didn't. And all the uh, names and information just uh, you know mistakes happened. And that was a uh, Garrett Nuss was a guy who should have been on the BA 500. Well, would have been in that 400 to 500 range. I wouldn't have jacked him up, but he was like uh, number one prospect two years ago out of the Florida Summer Collegiate League uh, after his high school senior year. So he was drafted as a high school senior and uh, then drafted again this year. And in the middle, he had a very productive year as a middle reliever at Central Florida. So a guy that there's some history on hasn't gotten a ton better uh, over the course of his uh, since high school. Uh, but there is, as far as the, the quality of the stuff, he's gotten better in terms of his pitchability. But there's, there's some there there. Um, was there another draft that you want to talk about, Connor, that – underwhelm you a little bit okay well then i think what we need to move on to and finish up with jim um is a little 2014 talk and i'll kind of lead this off by i am excited about the college sophomore class the current sophomores and when you look just at the start of the year where we did our our, top 50 sophomores in the college preview issue um running down the top of that a lot of these guys are still the top guys carlos rodon right in that mix the top tyler Beatty at vanderbilt right in the mix of the top Jeff Hoffman had a pretty up-and-down year for East Carolina, but the stuff was still there. I, I, I don't know if he's going to be number three on the board, but he'll be toward the top of it. Trey Turner had an ankle injury and is still a 70-runner. Bro- broke his ankle and is still a 70-runner and is second on that team in home runs and shifted yeah. to shortstop, although uh, so I think there's still a lot of question about him at shortstop. But Trey Turner is still going to be right toward the top of this. Um, some other names come down, but to me, I'm looking down this list. Michael Conforto is going to go good. If he'd been in this year's draft, he would have been one of the top college hitters available. He's Pac-12 player of the year. So you're at 11, you're sitting there with Nick Birdie throwing 100 miles an hour. Michael Cedaroff at San Diego State, still some untapped potential there, still some wildness. Maybe the guy who's moved up the furthest from this list is at 15, Aaron Nola. I know he's not overly physical at 6'1", 183, but this guy is a stud. He's probably the guy, actually, who's like the right now best pitcher in college baseball. Um, and then just some other guys who really intrigue me, whether you're talking about a, a Joey Pancake and Tanner English and Grayson Griner at South Carolina. I like this. I like the college class, Connor. I think the college class this year and twenty or for the 2014 draft is going to be better than the college class was in the 2013 draft. How are the high schools shaken up early on? Uh, early on, it looks it looks very good, especially at the top. I mean, you've got some big bats with the, the kid named Alex Jackson in, in the San Diego area. Um, got catcher now. Him. Yeah, yep. he's probably going to move to right field just because the bat is special. You know, he's got big-time, big-time power. Uh, Jacob Gatewood, a shortstop from Northern California, just a really, really good all-around player. Also pitches. I mean, he threw a no-hitter this year. He's been up to 92, but a slick fielder. He could play, you know, probably maybe can stay at shortstop initially. Might have to move to third base or even center field, but has, you know, hit a home run at Airy Coast, so he's a good hitter as well. we got Tuki Tucson out there, the kid from Miami. Who's, yeah. uh, I think we don't know exactly where he's going to be next year. It could be some rumors he's going to move to Atlanta, this kind of stuff. But Tuki's athletic, good body, already signed to the U uh, of Haitian. No, I think he, uh, oh, I he's think decommitted. He pulled, yeah, he decommitted. He's of Haitian descent. I know that part. And, uh, you know, was really good last year. We saw him at Breakthrough Series. Talk of this year that he's been up to 96, 97 miles an hour. Would have been the top guy in South Florida this year if he were eligible um, South Florida was brutal. That's not really saying that much, but Tuki Tucson definitely a, a high school pitcher for 2014 to watch. Jim, I, I know you haven't delved too much into 2014, but what's your kind of your sense of that college class? And if you know, I don't know Rodon, Beatty, and who, who is the early lead to go one one in your mind? 
You know, I still think it's Rodon. He hasn't been, you know, as consistently dominant. You know, start in and start out. And you know, I had someone on Twitter today who said, you know, saw him in the Super Regional game and wasn't blown away by a guy he thought was going to go 1-1. You know, and, and there have been a little bit of ups and downs this year. But, you know, I was looking up uh, when Jonathan Gray signed last night, I was looking at the NCAA strikeout leaders. And I think Carlos Rodon still got something like, what, 170 strikeouts and 120 innings. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's the country by a may not, lot. Yeah, his, his command may not be, you know, as sharp as you'd like every time out, but he, he's still having a, a fabulous year. I, I think it's Rodon. I mean, I, I think everything being equal, the college pitcher's only always going to go number one if there's a guy in that mix, or usually going to go number one if there's a guy in that mix, just because it's so hard to find frontline starting pitching, and, and, you, and you not only is it hard to find, I mean, you want it quick. Um, and, and to me, you know, for the other pitchers you mentioned, you know, I think Rodon gets there quicker than, say, Tyler Beatty, and he's left-handed. So, so I think Rodon's the favorite right now. I'll just say it again, my uh... – I like Tyler Beatty. The guy was a first-round pick at a high school. <laughs> There's a lot to like there. But uh, Mike Rooney doing the color, co- doing the the studio commentary for ESPN during Super Regionals was watching NC State game against Rice and Tyler Beatty Vanderbilt's game against Louisville. And he's watching Tyler Beatty and Logan Jernigan for NC State, who's a hashtag personal cheese ball. I love Logan Jernigan, but he's like, I don't see a lot of difference between Tyler Beatty and Logan Jernigan. And Tyler Beatty walked a lot of guys this year, so people want to get underwhelmed a little bit by Rodon in Super Regionals. Tyler Beatty didn't make it out of the fourth inning against Louisville because he was walking too many guys. So it's going to be very intriguing to see those guys. Uh, and, and to me, if Turner improves defensively at shortstop, which I kind of expect to do in a year where, you know, he didn't break his ankle, <laughs> then, I, then I expect that, that Trey Turner could go – extremely high, and for me, I'll say it again, I think he's the best college shortstop probably since Troy Tulowitzki as far as a prospect goes. He's a completely different player from Tulo, but for a college shortstop, if this guy gets back to being an 80 runner like he was last year, the improvements he's made with his swing in the course of his college career, there's surprising impact there uh, when he's when he's healthy. He's a game-changing runner, 55 steals and 59 attempts as a freshman, which I think it was 24 for 30 this year, but again, he broke his ankle. He chipped the bone in his ankle. I mean, uh, and and carried his team to the College Series along with Carlos Rodon. So it's going to be a lot of heat here next year in the, the Raleigh-Durham area uh, with those guys uh, for sure. Um, Jim, anything else from you? Because uh, I, I think uh, the, the last part of this is you know, we're going to be covering next year's draft without Connor, and that's going to be tough. So. Um, I don't know if you had anything no tears. to send them no off. Tears. I know. I, you told me not to, but it's going to be tough. Um, no, I mean, it's well, – it's, uh, first I'll say uh, we wish Connor a fond farewell and enjoy working with him. But I, I do think you know, in terms of next year's draft, uh, I do think scouts are a little bit more enthused about this draft, you know, 2014, than they have been about 2012 and, and in 2013. Although, you know, as much as the last two drafts have been kind of knocked for not being real deep or, and whatever, and I think there's some truth to that, you know, the thing you always have to remember is, I mean, there, there's good players available in every round. You know, there was some guy on the board in the fifth round this year who's going to be an all-star. You know, we may not know right. who that is, but, but he's out there. There's a guy who's on the board in the tenth round who's going to be an all-star. We may not know who that is. You know, and there's probably a guy in the fifteenth round somewhere who, you know, is going to be a solid regular for a number of years. And, you know, I think even when people talk about the draft being down, and I think they say that in most years, that they feel like the draft's down because there's never enough talent uh, to satisfy everyone, there's, there still are some good players out there, and you just have to look a little harder for them. There, no doubt there are going to be good players out there, and uh, looking forward to uh, covering them again, obviously, with you, Jim, and uh, 
Connor, you can give people a little uh, scouting report on Clint Longenecker, who uh, for his first week at Baseball America said, I really think I need to go to PG National, even though like I'm barely moving in and my car is full of junk. Uh, my, my entire life is in my car, but I need to go to Minnesota for four days and just sit in the same seat and watch guys for 12 hours a day. So uh, maybe give people a little scouting report on Clint, the uh, guy who's kind of trying to fill your shoes here. Well, you're, I mean, you're in great hands. Clint's a, a, an awesome guy and a very hard worker. He has great experience in the game. He's a, you know, he's bird dog for a couple of years and really knows the game and really has a, an analytical mind and never stops asking questions. So, That's for sure. Uh, he's going to get after it. He's going to provide great coverage. He's going to, you know, pound the pavement and uh, do all the hard work necessary to to keep things rolling here. But um, tough guy to get out of my office. I'll tell you that. <laughs> he's got he's always got questions, like you said. So. Yeah, he he always has really good questions and. But just a great kid, you know. I love him. He's he's one of my uh, close personal friends, and uh, you know we we share a love for bacon and cocoa butter. <laughs> I don't, yeah, don't want to know more. <laughs> Too much information. Exactly. Too much information. I don't think I could top that. So, uh, Connor, we appreciate it. Probably your last podcast too. So, thanks for all the hard work. Thank you, guys. Thanks for everything, and uh, thanks for all your hard work, Jim. You own the draft. You own the draft signings. Um, Really appreciate everything you do, and appreciate all the listeners. We had a lot of requests for this draft podcast, so we hope we delivered uh, what you guys were looking for on this draft podcast. So for Jim Callis and Connor Glassy, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.